bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, August 24, 2010. Tax Credit Tuesday is a weekly podcast presented by Novogratik & Company, LLP. We're pleased to report that this month, Novogratik & Company was named a Top 50 Accounting Firm by Inside Public Accounting. Inside Public Accounting is a popular and well-known publication in the accounting world. The firm was also named as one of the Top 100 10 Fastest Growing Firms. Specifically, Novogratik & Company ranked 44th in the list of the Top 100. This is up from last year's ranking of 54th. This year marks Inside Public Accounting's 20th annual report on the nation's top 100 accounting firms. This week's podcast features information and news about the New Markets Tax Credit, Renewable Energy Tax Credits, the Historic Tax Credit, and the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. We'll start this week with a tax extenders update. We'll also have information on the Obama administration's conference on federal housing finance. In the Low Income Housing Tax Credit area, we have an announcement regarding HUD's escrow requirement for tax credit equity. We'll also cover a proposal in Missouri to dedicate a third of the state's affordable housing resources for fiscal year 2011 to create housing for the mentally ill and homeless. For the New Markets Tax Credit, we have an announcement regarding the launch of Ohio's New Market Tax Credit program. For our historic tax credit discussion this week, we're going to examine an appeals court decision in the White House hotel case. In the Renewable Energy Tax Credit portion of the podcast, we're going to summarize recent legislation enacted at the state level and also discuss a new loan guarantee solicitation from the Department of Energy. Then we'll close today with some tax credit tidbits. If you're ready, let's get started. As many of our listeners know, a couple of weeks ago, Congress passed and President Obama signed a $26.1 billion state fiscal aid package. Of note, in the tax extenders debate, is that the bill was paid for in part by some international tax provisions that previously had been earmarked to pay for part of the tax extenders bill. Any tax extenders legislation will need to be revenue neutral. So passage of tax extenders upon Congress's return on September 13th will depend on identifying additional tax revenue raisers. To that end, a couple of weeks ago, Russ Sullivan, who is the staff director of the Senate Finance Committee, told members of a business-led tax credit extenders coalition that the Senate Finance Committee has identified other revenue raisers that are needed to make the extenders bill revenue neutral. In addition, Mr. Sullivan said the Senate currently plans to consider a standalone version of the extenders bill with the additional revenue raisers. However, they'll consider the bill after the Senate considers the small business bill that had the Senate's attention before they went on their August recess. As such, the updated extenders bill will be considered or likely to be considered as a separate bill and is not likely to be attached to the Small Business Bill. We expect that the revised extenders bill will be released later this summer. The revised bill is expected to include all the tax extender provisions included in the Senate's most recently amended version of H.R. 4213. These tax extenders provisions include the extension of the Section 1602 LHTC cash grant program, 
Extension of the New Market Tax Credit Program through 2010 with $5 billion in allocation authority. And alternative minimum tax relief for QEIs, Qualified Equity Investments, issued between March 15, 2010 and January 1, 2012. Once the Finance Committee releases the revised bill, we expect that lobbying activity will pick up. As industry participants seek support of 60 senators to avoid a filibuster and majority support in the House of Representatives. We also expect there to be an effort to work with the business lobby to get a sign on letter in support of the tax extender bill. In such a letter, there was likely to be an effort to get it to the Senate leadership before they convene in September. We'll keep you posted on such efforts in future podcasts. Switching to the future of housing finance, on August 17th, the administration held a conference on the future of housing finance. The conference provided a forum for public input as the administration continues its work towards developing a comprehensive housing finance reform proposal for delivery to Congress by January 2011. During the conference, Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner said, and I quote, We will not support returning Fannie and Freddie to the role they played before conservatorship, where they fought to take market share from private competitors while enjoying the privilege of government support. We will not support a return to the system where private gains are subsidized by taxpayer losses. Close quote. HUD Secretary Sean Donovan, in his remarks, noted, and I quote, To be clear, the government's footprint in the housing market needs to be smaller than it is today, where FHA and the GSEs collectively guarantee over 90% of all mortgage loans. Close quote. After their comments, Secretary Geithner and Secretary Donovan moderated panel discussions with a diverse group of experts about the critical issues surrounding housing finance reform. Major panel discussions first covered housing finance reform and the broader financial markets, and then housing finance reform and broader housing policy goals. There were also six working breakout lunches. They covered who the key players in a reform system would be and the role of the private sector and of government, means to delivering access and affordability, ways to fund housing and the role of securitization in that effort, how to align private market incentives in the housing finance chain, means of supporting capital for multifamily finance, and how to manage the process of transition. If you're interested in viewing some of the key sessions from the Housing Finance Conference, go to C-SPAN. They have several of the sessions available for viewing online. Now let's turn to low-income housing tax credit news. Yesterday, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development released its final rule that prohibits the escrowing of tax credit equity. The rule changes HUD's previous practice of requiring that a substantial portion of the low-income housing tax credit equity be placed into escrow at the time of additional endorsement of the HUD loan, such that the cash will be available for future use over the life of the project. That requirement has had an inhibiting effect on the building of new low-income housing tax credit projects with HUD-insured mortgages and it often required the use of bridge loans until the escrow proceeds were released. The final rule, in accordance with the provision in the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008, bars HUD from requiring the escrowing of equity from the sales of long housing tax credits for HUD-insured mortgages. In addition, the rule extends the same treatment to historic tax credits and new market tax credits. As such, this escrow requirement is also eliminated when equity is provided from these types of tax credits. Borrowers will now only be required to deposit sufficient cash into escrow 
to satisfy the Federal Housing Commissioner that the deposit, when added to the proceeds of the insured mortgage, will be sufficient to assure completion of the project, as well as to pay the initial service charge, carrying charges, and legal and organizational expenses that are incident to the construction of the project. Additionally, the tax credit equity does not need to be fully dispersed before the full disbursement of the mortgage proceeds. A copy of this notice can be found online at www.taxcredithousing.com. Also in the affordable housing area, last week, Missouri State Treasurer Clint Zweifel called on the Missouri Housing Development Commission to pass a multi-million dollar package to provide housing for Missourians suffering from a mental illness. The plan would allocate $127 million, or 33% of affordable housing resources for fiscal year 2011 to create needed housing that tackles mental illness and chronic homelessness. Zweifel's office says that one in four adults suffers from a mental illness each year, and that would be about 1.1 million Missourians. Zweifel says his plan would create 400 specialized homes for those with mental illness. Zweifel's plan has been endorsed by the National Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health America of Eastern Missouri. It will be interesting to see if this effort to dedicate a third of affordable housing resources to tackle mental illness becomes a pattern or trend across other states and across the country. Next, let's turn to new market tax credit news. Last Friday, Ohio Governor Ted Strickland, along with Ohio Department of Development Director Lisa Pat McDaniel, announced the opening of the first round of applications for the Ohio New Market Tax Credit Program. The Ohio New Market Tax Credit Program is one of the first state programs of its kind in the country and leverages the successful federal New Market Tax Credit Program to attract additional investment to Ohio. The program is administered by the department's Urban Development Division. A total of $10 million in tax credits is available in the first round of funding. Now, only community development entities that serve Ohio that have already received a tax credit allocation from the federal New Market Tax Credit Program are eligible to apply. The Ohio NMTC program provides a 39% tax credit over seven years for qualified investments in low-income community businesses. Applications for the Ohio New Market Tax Credit are due by September 20th, 2010. That's less than 30 days away. Approved applications will be announced by October 31st, 2010. Questions about the program can be directed to Annette Stevenson, a partner in Novogratz and Company's Cleveland, Ohio office. Simply give Annette a call at 216-298-9000. More information is also available at www.urban.development.ohio.gov. For a full listing of state new market tax credit and similar programs, I also invite you to visit Novogratz's new market tax credit website, at www.newmarketscredits.com. Simply click on the Application Allocation tab on the banner, then click on the State and NTC Programs tab in the drop-down menu. You'll find lots of interesting information about other states that have a State and NTC or similar program. Let's now move on to Historic Tax Credit news. The Historic Tax Credit community welcomed a ruling by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, a ruling dated August 10th, in which the court vacated and remanded the U.S. Tax Court ruling in White House Hotel Limited Partnership versus Commissioner. Now, back in 2008, a U.S. Tax Court ruling substantially reduced the value of a 1997 charitable contribution deduction for a facade easement that had been conveyed on the historic Mason Blanche building. The court reduced the deduction 
from $7.445 million down to $1.15 million. The primary issue in the appeals case was the tax court's decision to exclude from its easement valuation the economic impact of the developer's lost development rights. Those are rights to build an additional six stories on top of an adjacent building. The adjacent building was the Crest Building. While the easement binds any future owner of the Maison Blanche, it did not bind a future owner of the Crest Building. However, the condominium regime that had been adopted the day after the conveyance of the easement had combined the two buildings in a single indivisible unit of property, thereby assuring that the Crest Building would retain its historic height in perpetuity. The IRS's appraiser appraised only the Maison Blanche because the terms of the easement did not specifically address the Crest Building, and in his opinion, the easement did not restrict the aggregate number of the rooms. In contrast, the developer's appraisal approach included both buildings on the theory that because the two structures were now an indivisible property based on the condominium regime, the easement impacted the value of both buildings. In its ruling, the appeals court found that the tax court had erred in not considering for valuation purposes that the Crest and Masson Blanche could never come under separate ownership and that the conservation easement therefore affected the building's fair market value. This ruling is good news for developers who use facade easement donations as part of the layered sources of financing for historic rehabilitation. You can read more about the details of the White House case and the appeals court decision in the September issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. Next, we move to renewable energy tax credit news. Even though energy legislation has been slower to move than originally expected in Congress, at the state level, a number of lawmakers are enacting new measures to encourage the development of renewable energy. In New Jersey, for instance, last week, New Jersey Governor Christie signed the Offshore Wind Economic Development Act. The bill was sponsored by Senator Stephen Sweeney and Senator Thomas Keene. The bipartisan measure is expected to spur economic growth in the Garden State through the development of renewable energy resources and the creation of green jobs. The legislation makes available financial assistance and tax credits from existing programs for qualified offshore wind projects and associated equipment manufacturing and assembling facilities. The bill directs the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities to develop an offshore renewable energy certificate program that calls for a percentage of electricity sold in the state to be from offshore wind energy. This percentage would be developed to support at least 1,100 megawatts of generation from qualified offshore wind projects. Turning to Illinois, last week, Illinois Governor Pat Quinn signed legislation that sets strength and targets for utilities that will be purchasing more solar energy. There, House Bill 6202, sponsored by Representative William Burns of Chicago and Senator Don Harmon of Oak Park, amends both the Illinois Power Agency Act and the Public Utilities Act to move up the date by which Commonwealth Edison and Ameren must begin purchasing solar energy as part of the renewable energy portfolio requirement. The new law changes the date to 2012, moves it up three years from the previous date of 2015. More specifically, the power industry is now going to be required in Illinois to purchase half a percent of its power from solar sources by June 1, 2012, 1.5% of their power from solar sources by June 1, 2013, 3% by June 1, 2014, and up to 6% by June 1, 2015. House Bill 6202 takes effect immediately. 
Turning to the Department of Energy, on August 12th, Department of Energy Secretary Stephen Chu announced a new loan guarantee solicitation for renewable energy manufacturing projects. The solicitation is under Section 1705 of the Recovery Act. The solicitation seeks applications for projects that manufacture commercial technology renewable energy systems as well as their components, such as wind turbine systems, blades, or solar components. The Department of Energy says it recently implemented a number of improvements to its loan guarantee program that should help facilitate a more efficient application process. For example, the Department says it's designed and organized the manufacturing solicitation to provide greater transparency into application requirements, the evaluation processes, schedules, and fees. Additionally, applicants can apply to the solicitation via a newly launched user-friendly online application portal. As with earlier solicitations, the manufacturing solicitation will consist of a two-step process with rolling deadlines. The first deadline is September 30th, just over a month away, September 30th, 2010. And the first Part 2 deadline is November 30th, 2010. The final Part 1 applications are due November 30th, and the final Part 2 applications are due January 31st. So that's first Part 1, September 30th, first Part 2, November 30th, Final Part 1, November 30th. Final Part 2, January 31st, 2011. Applicants are strongly encouraged to get their applications in early since projects must meet all statutory and regulatory requirements as well as commence construction no later than September 30th, 2011. More information can be found online at www.energy.gov. We're also pleased to report that we're just one week away from the arrival of the Renewable Energy Tax Credit Handbook. This new addition to Noah Grattan Company's library of tax credit resources brings together the latest information, rules, and regulations related to the renewable energy tax credit industry. In addition, the book describes the technical rules of the various tax credits, financing structures that are used to structure renewable energy tax credit transactions, as well as the types of business entities that can best use the tax credits. Learn more or order your copy today online at www. .novaco.com/products. We close with some tax credit tidbits. We want to first note that with respect to the Novagradic Rent Income Limit Calculator, the Ether Program option has been updated for 2010. This is a popular feature, and we've had numerous requests to get it updated as quickly as we could. This feature allows the user to calculate income and rent limits based on the HUD-published area median incomes at the 30% level, the 50% level, 80% level, or 100% level. Users can also customize imputed persons per bedroom for rent calculations. If you have any questions about this other program option on the Rent and Income Limit Calculator, simply send an email to cpas at novaco.com or give Thomas Stagg a call at 415-356-8000. He's in our San Francisco office. I also want to share with you some recent HUD guidance for multifamily mortgage insurance applications that involve long-term housing tax credits. In Housing Notice 2010-10, HUD provides additional guidance for implementing the processing change that was introduced in Mortgagee Letter 2008-19. That letter was titled, Streamline Processing of Multifamily Mortgage Insurance Applications Involving Long-Income Housing Tax Credits. Mortgagee Letter 2008-19 authorize owners associated with an MAP, a MAP application, for one of the FHA mortgage insurance programs that that were listed in the notice 
to defer the submission of final architectural drawings and specifications until 30 days before the date scheduled for the initial endorsement of the loan. The guidance that was released this month clarifies the type of MAP third-party assessments, field office review analyses, and MAP lender documentation that should be completed at the firm commitment stage. And this is in lieu of what is normally required when final plans and specifications are submitted. You can find a copy of this guidance online at www.hudresourcecenter.com or give Susan Wilson a call. She's in our Austin office and heads up our HUD practice. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another edition of Tash for a Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.